You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Latin American History Podcast, Episode 61, Fugitive Freedom, an interview with William Taylor. As you can probably guess by the title, today we're taking a break from our series on the conquest of Peru, so that I can bring you something special. Today's episode is an interview with William Taylor about his new book, Fugitive Freedom. In the field of colonial Mexican history, William is one of the most well-known and respected scholars. Over the course of a career starting in the 1960s, he's taught at the University of Colorado, the University of Virginia, Southern Methodist University, and the University of California, Berkeley. He's the author of numerous books examining everything from indigenous resistance, Mexican colonial religion, to the relationship between landlords and peasants. He has won some of the highest awards in the field of Latin American history, both for his books and personally for his overall contribution to the subject. It's safe to say then that he has some interesting and authoritative things to say when it comes to Mexican history. His latest book and the subject of this episode is the story of two men who challenged the rules of colonial society. They were what were known as vagabundos, and, by using deception, these two lived quite extraordinary lives, which not only make great, if at times sad, stories, but also provide us with a lens through which to learn more about both colonial Mexican society and a genre of fiction which was popular across the colonial era. So here he is. Enjoy. So I was wondering if you could start off by kind of explaining who the, the vagabundos were and how they emerged as a, a category of person. Well, uh, you know that uh, it's, it's hard to say who, uh, and that's, to me, kind of an irony because there's plenty of, re- there are reports, there are edicts, uh, uh, laws of other kinds that uh, are issued uh, during the colonial period from very early on, uh, from the 1530s on, uh, r- royal authorities are worried about uh, 
what they call vagabundos, vagamundos, people who kind of aimlessly go about the world uh, and uh, very concerned about these as a social and uh, and and civic problem. Uh, yet, you know very little about individual individuals called vagabundos or even who who they were as groups. Although in the 16th century, um, the earliest stages of this colonial history, uh, most of the, of the people that the authorities were worried about uh, were Spanish immigrants uh, who didn't seem to have a place in this, <clears throat> in this new world and were of concern as, as suspect individuals, people who might do bad things. Uh, as time goes on, uh, you know, if we're, if we're looking for some kind of social description of vagabundos, uh, uh, more, than, more of them are identified as, uh, as mestizos or castizos or mulatos, people who didn't fit neatly into the racial scheme that uh, uh, Spaniards had devised for uh, establishing order in, in the New World. And you mentioned the... Um the different racial categories and the um the elaborate scheme that the spanish set up to to kind of divide people into groups in their empire um i mean the empire was so big um and some parts of it were so remote and it had so many diverse people that i get the impression that administering it would have been quite challenging and the way they the way they tried to resolve this was by creating these these categories um so would you say it's fair to say that because the vagabundos were using deception to escape the, the confines of these categories that they were seen as overly threatening by the authorities perhaps more than than their actual acts would suggest they should be i think that's definitely part of the story but vagabondos were not necessarily being kind of identified by, by race, either by authorities or perhaps by the vagabondos themselves, although they wanted to pass as Spaniards if they could. The, the category of Spaniard was the desired category. But that, that whole question of, of racial categories is a fascinating and complex one, uh, because in principle, um, the uh, uh, this imperial system was idealized in terms of three racial groups, Spaniards, Indians, the indigenous people now called Indians in this colonial period, and Blacks, who were generally identified as, uh, as, as slaves. Uh, but that kind of idealized three-part uh, racial system is going to break down pretty quickly. Um, through miscegenation, and I don't mean just racial mixture, but cultural mixture as well. There are people who, who, who live in uh, indigenous communities who have blue eyes. Uh, are, are they Indians? Are they, uh, who are they? Mestizos, Spaniards? Uh, uh, so as time goes on uh, in this, this long three, three centuries of colonial history, um, these categories, the three basic categories uh, kind of collapse, they break down and Increasingly, the authorities have to find other kind of intermediate categories to, to label people and place them to establish some kind of order, some kind of hierarchy in, uh, in, in this society. And that's part of a larger story for me of, um, 
what uh, Bourbon, excuse me, Habsburg administrators in the 17th century, uh, Spanish Habsburgs, called the Mixto Imperio. Um, that is, they were interested in establishing an empire. That is, empire suggests order, uh, established place for people. Uh, mixto uh, is, is, is a word that suggests jumbled. So we have this paradox of a jumbled empire uh, from the point of view of authorities. They're worried about that. They want to impose order, but as the basic categories that they work from, whether they're racial or social in some other fashion, um, Christian, non-Christian, uh, old Christian, new Christian, uh, these categories begin to blur and you either establish new categories or you find some way uh, to either recognize uh, those differences that are becoming more complex or individuals, as you were suggesting, like uh, uh, people were calling vagabundos here, a category that's not one that they would accept. Most of the people who are called vagabundos, I don't believe, uh, but they're looking for a way to, uh, to bend the rules, to, to survive, to, to pass as, to pass is something that, uh, that they probably aren't. That is by the way they dress, uh, uh, they can appear to be someone they aren't. Uh, uh, they can take on different personalities. In the case of the two individuals I talk about in this book, they, uh, they, they pass or attempt to pass as priests for a while. Uh, one of them has other uh, uh, aliases, other ways of presenting himself, but uh, uh, both of them end up being imposters uh, uh, from the point of view of the of, of established authorities uh, for pretending to be priests. The two stories, the two people, characters you've built the the book around they both have really really interesting stories um at first yeah at first they seem quite similar but actually in the book you kind of draw out how actually they're quite different in many ways and their motivations are a bit different um you start with aguayo as the first one um and i i personally think his story is is kind of more exciting in many ways um, I was just wondering if you could give an outline of, of what we know about his life. Well, he's, he's from Guanajuato and he's, 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 uh, uh, he's born in the mid 18th century. Uh, this is a time when the city, city of Guanajuato, the mining district of Guanajuato is beginning to experience uh, a final big boom uh, in the colonial period. Uh, Guanajuato, north of Mexico City, uh, uh, in, uh, in the Bajio region um, had been an important mining center since the 16th century. It, you know, like most mining centers, it had had its ups and downs, but coming back again uh, in the mid 18th century, uh, uh, that's his hometown. He's, he's not a person of privilege. His father, to, to my surprise, the best I can figure, his, his father, uh, who's illiterate uh, and uh, basically unskilled, uh, was uh, became apparent uh, in when when uh, when Joseph Aguayo was uh, fourteen. Excuse me, when jo he was he the father was about fourteen or fifteen when Joseph Aguayo was born. Uh, so it's kind of off to a rough start there uh, with uh, uh, 
uh, a mother who uh, apparently died soon after he was born. So he's he's raised in his early years by a father who's trying to make a living um, by uh, uh, gleaning uh, uh, the bits of silver out of uh, uh, out of the ore that had already been processed by the by the big mines. And there was there was probably enough in the way of, of uh, uh, tailings for, for him to, to make him a very modest living. Uh, but in any case, uh, he, the, the father marries uh, again. And we, I mean, it's not clear exactly when, how old uh, Joseph Aguayo was, his first son uh, was at the time. But in any case, uh, the, the Joseph was, uh, mm, I don't want to say cast out exactly, but he 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 clearly was not uh, someone who was integrated in the, into the new family that his his father established, and he was sent off to a uh, to a neighboring city, uh, the city of Queretaro, to to get a, a kind of rudimentary education, and uh, sent to work on a ranch for a for a year or so. And he comes back to Guanajuato. His father brings him back. It's hard to tell how old he is. He's his story is one that's. Uh, um, compressed in various ways. He's 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 selective. He's uh, he's a great dissimulator. That is, he's going to tell you what he wants you to know or what he has to own up to. Uh, and uh, the disarming part of his testimony and 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 confession is that he owns up to quite a lot. So it's 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 half believable, uh, or, or maybe more than half believable. This is a guy who was good with words. Uh, his father brings him back to Guanajuato. He he uh, he studies with a local Jesuit and serves as an acolyte in the church for a brief time, and then runs away from home and repeatedly runs away from home and admits to the Inquisition when he when he's brought to to trial that uh, that he uh, uh, he had a mala inclinacion. He was he was something of a juvenile delinquent uh, and and would run off by himself and be away for long periods of time. And eventually he gets, uh, he gets arrested for, uh, apparently for theft. And it's possible that his father actually turned him in. Uh, uh, he, 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 he gets out of prison eventually. He's still a teenager, uh, gets out of prison and uh, goes home and hopes that his, asks his father if he would take him back or at least give him some clothing and food. And, the father and his wife uh, say, nope, you're, this is it, you're out of here. And so from that point on, Aguayo is very much on his own, uh, moving around in, in, in uh, central and north central Mexico. Uh, how he's making a living at that point, uh, how he's surviving is not altogether clear, although again, he, he admits that uh, petty theft uh, is something that he, that he indulged in and, uh, and had uh, uh, begun to to establish these uh, these um, um, these false identities as as a royal official uh, in some cases uh, as an official of the mint or an assistant to a district governor and um, uh, eventually here uh, he's probably eighteen or nineteen at this point he begins to pose as a priest uh, that seems a little unlikely uh, since uh, you know. Uh, uh, men who trained for the priesthood wouldn't be ordained until they were 24 or 25. Uh, and he was a, a, he was a small man uh, and, and looked young anyway. So that this was, 
uh, in a sense, uh, uh, an imposture that uh, was going to be a little difficult to pull off, but but he, he began to pull it off. Uh, uh, his experience as an acolyte, uh, his, uh, his study with the Jesuit in, in Guanajuato had given him exposure to the mass and to uh, uh, to confession and how to perform those uh, th those duties or how to simulate those those duties uh, and he discovered that in small towns and villages that didn't see a priest often uh, if he was wearing the right clothes uh, and could do the basic uh, uh, rituals that he was he was welcome and he could make something of a living from that I think he turned to that not because he really wanted to pretend to be a priest particularly but because it was probably more lucrative than other kinds, other ways of, of, of making a living that he, that he had. Uh, so he, he, uh, he eventually gets caught uh, for that um, and uh, is, is sent to the, the Guanajuato uh, municipal jail, which he hates, which is a, a dangerous place. Uh, and also a, a, an unsanitary place, uh, not, a, not a place where you want to spend any length of time. And he's there for some months and, and is uh, uh, asks to be sent to the Inquisition, saying that he's got, uh, he's got, he's got some spiritual uh, problems to rectify, uh, that he's, he's acted like a heretic. Uh, uh, and uh, he, he, wants to, he wants to make... He wants to make good with uh, with the church and with God. Uh, so he eventually gets gets taken to Mexico City. On the other hand, on the way to Mexico City, he escapes. Uh, one of four times that he's escaped, he escapes. He's something of a an escape artist as well as a smooth talker, uh, and uh, he's 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 on the run again for some months. And they capture him and send him to Mexico City to the Inquisition jail and. Uh, in court, and he uh, uh, he makes a confession when he when he when he gets to the court of the Inquisition. Uh, the, the Inquisition is 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 leery of him. Uh, in, in fact, he's given a whipping of two hundred lashes on his way into Mexico City to 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 give him a message that uh, that this is serious business, uh, and he. Uh, he undergoes a trial and, and, and confession, and the, the idea of pretending to be a priest is a very serious matter because it's uh, from church authorities, ecclesiastical authorities, because uh, uh, he's endangering, he's not only uh, thumbing his nose at the church and the Inquisition in particular by doing so, but he's, he's also endangering the immortal souls of anyone he may have confessed who thought they had, had, had performed a... Uh, uh, a full and legitimate uh, uh, confession, which of course they hadn't, because he wasn't an ordained priest. So he's given a he's given a, a trial, and he goes through an auto de fe, this procession of humiliation, and he uh, he uh, is sentenced to ten years of exile from any place that he pretended to be a priest. And it's not clear how many times he'd actually done it. He owns up to the ones that. That uh, the, the church, the church and, and civil officials knew about, but it's entirely possible he'd been doing this uh, dozens of times, because he's pretty good at it. Uh, but in any case, ten years exile from any place he'd he performed these acts, uh, a uh, and a sentence of five years of hard labor on the fortifications in Cuba, 
in Havana, Cuba. Here in the mid 18th century, Spain's got a big program of rebuilding fortifications to protect against uh, European uh, enemies. Uh, so he set off to, to Veracruz, the uh, port of Veracruz, on a, uh, the rope line of prisoners uh, who were being sent with him. And he's put to work on the fortifications in Veracruz first, uh, awaiting ship to, to be taken to, to, to Cuba. And he's there for some months. And again, he escapes. And uh, uh, that's another no-no. Uh, the, the court obviously doesn't going to look favorably on, on anyone who's not accepted their punishment and, and uh, taken, taken the bitter pill. Uh, but he escapes in Veracruz. And uh, uh, again, at least once pretends to be a priest and finds his way back to his hometown of Guanajuato. Uh, He's not, he's, he doesn't live, he really never lives in Guanajuato again after he'd taken off as a teenager, but he keeps coming back, uh, I think not to see relatives, not to seek help, but uh, because it was a place he knew very well and was a uh, lucrative, potentially lucrative place to be. Uh, uh, so he's, he's, he's arrested uh, uh, there and put, uh, put, put again in the municipal jail, which, which he absolutely hates. Um, and he... He wants to uh, to come before the Inquisition again. Uh, he knows it's not going to be easy, but uh, but he prefers that to the, the the likelihood of something more serious by the way of punishment and and endangerment uh, in 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 the royal jails. But his way of doing so at this point, uh, the, the Inquisition is really not that interested in him at that point. But he uh, one of his jailmates is a hardened criminal. Um, who uh, had been dabbling in witchcraft. And the two of them devised this plan to pretend, maybe it's pretense, maybe it's not, we don't know for sure, but uh, to use witchcraft as a way of either escaping jail or presenting themselves as heretics. Again, they talk a lot about this to their jail mates. They, uh, they put... Um, prints of the Virgin Mary in their shoes and walk around in them. They do damage to a, uh, uh, to a, to a statue of, of Christ. They, uh, uh, they, uh, they, they, they take uh, Rosa Maria, uh, another name for marijuana, uh, as, as a way of having visions that will kind of take them to uh, communication, communication with the devil. Or did they really do that? It's it's not clear. Were they were they doing that for effect? This is kind of a performance to get them back to the Inquisition. Inquisition takes an interest in them, and it happens. The Inquisition says, "Bring those men here." And so Aguayo's again in Mexico City before the Inquisition, along with his uh, his erstwhile ally here, uh, uh, a man by the name of Agustin Solano. Uh, that's a long episode that. Uh, leads to an, a, a, a trial of Solano and a, a second trial for, uh, uh, for, for uh, uh, Armando Aguayo. Uh, I won't elaborate on, on that beyond saying that uh, the Inquisition is really more concerned about uh, Aguayo than they are about Solano, even though Solano is the hardened criminal and, and is the one who, where there's documentary proof that he was engaged in witchcraft, had been engaged in witchcraft for a number of years. But they focus on, uh, on Aguayo, and this time 
another 200 lashes, another auto de fe, uh, and now he's sentenced to uh, eight years uh, in Havana. And this time under heavy guard, he's taken back to Veracruz and quickly put on a ship for Havana. And uh, he's, he's gone from Mexico for a period of 14 years. And he, he's the one who tells us the story of, of Cuba. And again, he, he doesn't, it's interesting. He, as I said, a man of half truths, he, he, he owns up to a lot of bad things. Uh, so it's, it's uh, do you believe him altogether? Do you believe part of this? Uh, he's always very selective. He's not gonna tell a full narrative. He'll kind of pick out a period of time when he knows the authorities know something about him and talk about that in some detail. But in, in Cuba, he says, well, you know, I was working on the fortifications in Havana for a little while, but then I got this position as a secretary um, to a, a ship's captain, a Spanish uh, ship's captain who was patrolling the coast uh, of, of Cuba. So again, he's putting his literacy to use and he's escaping the worst kind of punishment. Uh, that ship was uh, attacked by, uh, uh, by uh, an English Corsair and uh, and uh, set a flyer, a fire, and Aguayo somehow survived and was taken to a, a, a hospital in a coastal town in, in Cuba. And from there escapes again uh, after he uh, uh, recovers in part. We don't know what happens to him after he escapes. He won't tell us much, except he says he, he gets arrested. He, he, he's found and arrested for, uh, he says, for, the, uh, for theft. And he's sentenced to... Uh, 10 years uh, on uh, fortifications in, 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 in uh, the port of Santiago of uh, Cuba. Um, he, he, he says that he takes on a, an alias at that point, uh, Jose Montero is the alias. And he says he does that because he hadn't served his, his full eight years uh, for the original sentence. And if he, he told the authorities what his real name was, he'd be sentenced to the remainder of that term plus whatever they wanted to add to it. So he adopted this alias, or he says he does. So he serves out, he apparently served out his term in, in Santiago uh, and is uh, floating around Cuba for oh, another two or three years before he takes ship back to, uh, takes back ship, uh, ship back to Mexico. Uh, his release papers after he left the, uh, the fortifications at Santiago are uh, in the name of Jose Montero. And that's why he, he makes a point of saying, well, this is a, an alias I adopted because he has to show those papers in Mexico when he returns. Uh, and he, you know, when he comes back to Mexico uh, in the late 1780s, he, uh, uh, he shows his papers. And as it turns out, the, uh, uh, he, he goes to Guanajuato, back to Guanajuato, and the, uh, the Inquisition delegate uh, uh, representative at that point, the Comisario, had been the same one who had been there uh, 14 years before and knew who Aguayo was, saw him on the street and said, who is this guy? He's looking suspicious again. Uh, let's see his papers. And the papers to the Comisario looked a little suspicious uh, because he, um, it wasn't in his name, it wasn't in Aguayo's name, it was named of uh, Montero and the, the printing on the paper looked a little strange. Uh, so he informs, the Comisario informs the Inquisition said, what, what should I do about this guy? And the Inquisition says at that point, let's have another little investigation. Uh, you hold on to him, observe him, see what he does. Uh, 
uh, and and uh, so he's under, in effect, a, a kind of house arrest for, uh, I don't know, a period of about eight months. And eventually the Inquisition decides that, uh, well, it's okay to let this guy go. He's, he's, he's come back, he's kind of ill, he's now much older, he's in his 40s now. Uh, he's, he's lived longer than he should have, really, by, by all rights. Uh, and uh, let's, uh, let's let him, he'll perform some spiritual exercises and then he can go where he wants to go. And he asks to go to a, another mining camp in northern Mexico. And, and the authorities in Guanajuato and the Inquisition are happy to have him go. And so he, he, he disappears and presumably goes north, uh, but reappears two years later in Guanajuato first and then in Mexico City. And he's arrested again for posing as a priest. Uh, this is a man in his mid-40s now. Uh, he's, he's obviously unreconstructed. <laughs> and he's arrested by authorities of the, of the archbishop in Mexico City at that point for, for this, uh, this heresy. And the archbishop's court uh, sends a message to the Inquisition saying, uh, well, we've got this guy. We know you've, you've seen him before. Uh, what should we do with him? Can we pass him along to you again? And at that point, the Inquisition throws up its hands and said, no, uh, we, we've, had, we've had enough. Uh, he's, he's in your jurisdiction now. And that's uh, kind of the end of the story. But the, the character who emerges, uh, for me, the fascinating part of dealing with these two characters, uh, not, not only are vagabundos as individuals basically unknown in this history of, of colonial Mexico, but there's a chance to get a little bit through through their actions, through their words, uh, through testimony about them, get into their inner lives a little bit. And uh, uh, that uh, that was part of the appeal, both with Aguayo and, and, and Atondo, uh, my, my other uh, uh, picaresque-like, vagabond-like uh, uh, character. Yeah, I thought, I thought that was fascinating because Aguayo is he's a survivor clearly um and you can argue that he he had little choice because of the circumstances of his upbringing um but he's very calculating he knows what he's doing and he knows exactly how much he can get away with sometimes he pushes it a little bit too far right um, he's an extraordinary performer I think. Yeah, yeah for sure um, and so, yeah, you mentioned Atondo, the, the second character, who my impression of him was a bit different. Um, I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about him and what he, what we know about his life. Sure. The, the reason why I paired uh, the two of them together was that, uh, num num number one, I, I, I thought I had some rich material about these two characters that I don't have about, about other people that... Uh, either got labeled vagabundos or that we would think of as kind of picaresque, uh, uh, picaresque characters. Uh, he, he bears some similarities to Aguayo in, 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 uh, in being uh, somebody who's, uh, uh, as a young man, uh, uh, is, he's uh, out on his own. Uh, he's, he's also born poor, but not as poor as, as Aguayo. And he's got a better claim on, on being of Spanish descent. Uh, Aguayo, according to his own self-presentation, is a, descended from old Christian Spaniards, but the witnesses who, who met him describe him quite differently. They, 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 they call him 
usually a little, uh, an indito, uh, a little Indian. Uh, I mean, this is part of his, uh, I think part of his mystique is that he seems insignificant uh, in, in various ways, uh, looks are deceiving in, in the case of Aguayo Atondo, uh, has a better claim on being of uh, Spanish descent and of, of uh, having kind of an old Christian uh, background. One of his one of his uncles he had become a priest, and they're from Mexico City. Uh, his 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 mother was widowed. Uh, uh, it was certainly not wealthy, uh, but did what she could to provide him with an early education. And he had been he made several false starts at becoming. Uh, a member of uh, a, uh, a branch of the Franciscans, a quite strict branch of the Franciscans that his uncle had, uh, uh, had, had become a member of. Um, but he's, uh, he's, he's similar to uh, uh, Aguayo in the sense that uh, he becomes something of a, a young delinquent uh, disowned by his family uh, uh, without steadfast friends or community ties. Uh, and he, he, has, he also has to live on deception and, 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 broken, uh, and, and broken promises. Uh, but he's, he's a very different kind of character, I think. Um, he, he's much less of a, an effective performer. He's not as good with words. Uh, He's not as calculating. Uh, his his motivations are, are are muddied in various ways. But he has what he calls a profes a propension religiosa, this kind of this uh, uh, pr religious propensity, and it it's it's going to be reflected in twice trying to become a a, a member of this monastic order. Uh, and in both cases, uh, resigning, uh, he says, for health reasons. Uh, hard, hard to tell exactly what, what's going on at that point. Uh, he eventually uh, becomes a, uh, a donado, that is a servant in a, uh, uh, in a, in a Franciscan uh, um, college convent in the city of Orizaba on the way to, to Veracruz. How he ends up there is, is a story of his kind of picaresque doings uh, because uh, he, uh, he, um, he, he, he has a, uh, uh, he has a, how shall I put it? Uh, uh, I don't want to say love affair exactly, but he has something of an affair with a, with a, with a young woman in Mexico City after he left uh, the the Franciscan convent there initially and had been apprenticed as a as a tailor, something he clearly didn't like, but he acquired the skills of a of a tailor. Uh, he uh, was he had this this girlfriend and she is pregnant and she tells uh, Atondo's mother that uh, that uh, that Atondo is the father. Now, Atondo denies that. He says he never had sex with her. He's uh, but his mother says, you either marry this woman or uh, you join the army and go to China, uh, which meant going to the, the Philippines. Uh, well, Atondo is faced with, uh, he's in between a rock and a hard place at that point. He doesn't want to marry the woman and doesn't. Uh, so he joins a, uh, a military unit, but a, a unit that's, uh, that's in the city of Puebla rather than going off to, to China. So he and at that point, his mother basically disowns him, and the relatives in Mexico disown him. Uh, 
uh, he, and he's there for a while, and his, his propension religiosa comes out, uh, he, he says, and, uh, and he convinces his, uh, uh, his, uh, uh, his captain of the, this, this military uh, unit uh, that, that he, he has a vocation as a, as, a, as a religious person, and his unit gets moved off to, uh, to Orizaba, and there he flees. He he deserts his military unit and goes into the to, into the convent uh, there, the, the college convent of the Franciscans. And at that point, he 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 claims that he's a heretic. What he wants to do is is have the the Franciscans take him into custody and and hold him there so he doesn't have to go back to his military unit. Uh, that doesn't quite work out. The the Franciscans discover that he's he's not a, a heretic, but uh, uh, they contact friends in Mexico City to find that out. Uh, so they return him to his military barracks, and he undergoes a kind of humiliation that's Christ-like, uh, 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 taunted by his fellow soldiers and all. And eventually, the the, the Franciscans in Orizaba allow him to come back as a donado, as a as a servant. Uh, and uh, the the his military unit is compensated. The Franciscans pay for the. Uh, the, the recruitment of someone to take uh, Atondo's place. And he's there for a couple of years, he says. Uh, and then suddenly, you know, kind of out of the blue, he leaves. Uh, after again establishing a kind of love relationship with, uh, uh, with, uh, with, with a young woman and exchanges gifts, uh, and his, the things he gave her apparently were stolen from the uh, from the convent, uh, she gives him sweetmeats and little treats and whatnot. And uh, but suddenly, you know, he he leaves he leaves there. He doesn't he doesn't go looking for his his girlfriend at that point at all. Uh, he uh, he he borrows a a horse under false pretenses and trots off to Mexico City, back to Mexico City. And there he, uh, in very short order, um, courts a young woman marries her, uh, uh, has a child, a daughter uh, by her, abandons her uh, almost immediately, serves again as an apprentice tailor. Again, this, you know, this, this looks you know, kind of like a whirlwind of picaresque leavings and departures and, and, and betrayals and deceit. Uh, and eventually, you know, this, <laughs> there, there's, a, there's a long story here, uh, but eventually, he says that, the, that he, he goes to Puebla and he, he, he has a kind of epiphany and, uh, and he's recovered his propension religiosa and, 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 uh, and asks the Bishop of Puebla to, to, to allow him to return to the convent in Orizaba. And on his way back there, he says he's, he's captured by insurgents. Uh, this is during the Mexican uh, War of Independence. Uh, uh, now, this part of his life. He's born in about 1781. He's, his, his whole presentation of self is kind of strange. He, uh, um, you know, he's, he, he, he never tells us exactly when things happened by year, but he can tell you the exact month and, and often the, the exact day. Uh, but in any case, about 1813, he's, he's on the way back to Orizaba. He's captured by uh, insurgents who were loyal to Jose Maria Morelos, the, 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 one of the great uh, regional leaders of the, the independence uh, uh, movement. And he says these, these people abuse him and they send him off to Morelos' headquarters in Chilpancingo, Guerrero. And uh, he's, he's 
he's they decide that he's he's a royalist he's a supporter of the crown he's he's loyal to the old regime and they send him off to um to a, a presidio an insurgent presidio to serve uh, hard labor and eventually he's released he says and and he he wanders around and eventually is is taken up as a again as a, a donado by uh, uh, under the Franciscan convent, a larger one, the the, the great Franciscan convent at uh, Querétaro. And he says they send him out. Uh, you know, he's, he serves there again for perhaps a year or, or more. Yeah, so he's he's not as he's not as restless as. Uh, as Aguayo is, he's more driven kind of by circumstance in his travels. Uh, uh, he seems willing to settle down at least for a while. And then suddenly, you know, something happens and, and he's, he's off again. Well, they send him out on an alms collecting tour in, in an area where there, there are insurgents. He's, he's worried about that. Uh, and uh, he's captured again. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he, he begins to present himself as a priest at that point, not just as a, as a donado, even though his papers say at the top of the, of the page of kind of license to collect alms, it says laico, that is, he's a layman, this is a layman's task. Uh, he scratches that out and, and, and uh, puts in uh, a clerical appointment. Uh, so he's presenting himself as a priest at that point. He's he, in retrospect, he's not at that point admitting that he was saying mass or performing confessions. But he says he's get, he gets he gets taken captive again by insurgents. And they move him around again. He's he, he travels fairly long distances in in central and north central Mexico here as a as a captive. So all of his movement is is not you know kind of from one parish to another doing his his impersonation, but. He eventually he says he's released from from uh, that, that that captivity because he says he 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 makes a persuasive argument that he'll never be an insurgent. He, he stands up to these insurgents and and says I'm a loyal supporter of the, of the crown of the church and all the rest. And he says they release him because to, to keep him around well that was gonna that was gonna subvert their uh, their 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 people. That's a little hard to believe, but nevertheless. At that point, he's he's back in the area that he'd been collecting alms, and now posing as a priest and clearly performing mass and above all, um, confessing uh, individuals in in small rural communities, basically. Uh, so he goes about that in a kind of manic way for a while, and eventually the, some of the, the parish priests in, in this area meet him and uh, decide that he's a phony and, and he's untrustworthy, and they, uh, they, they report him. And he eventually at that point goes to the Inquisition and is there an unusually long time. Uh, uh, there, there really weren't uh, prison sentences. Uh, at, at this time in the 18th century, whether it's the royal courts or the uh, or the ecclesiastical courts, uh, but you could be held for several years, uh, pending a, a verdict, a trial and verdict. And in the case of Atondo, he's he's held for about three years, and it's it's looking like an informal prison sentence. They want to keep him on ice because he's 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 a risky character, uh, not because he's devious, but because he he has this kind of 
almost mystical uh, sense of mission uh, that uh, that he, he he he's very reluctant to admit that he had never been or he'd never been uh, uh, admitted to the uh, to the to, to study for ordination uh, that he'd only been a uh, a, a donado. He'd only been a servant. Uh, he, partly because his, his own self-identity is wrapped up in this idea of his religious propension. Um, but he's he's there for about three years, and during that time, there, he's he he's, he confesses. Uh, the the inquisitors decide it's not an adequate confession. He really is not telling everything he knows, and and so he's kept there, and eventually. Over the period of about 12 months, he writes out his own confession, which is very unusual, extremely rare. And uh, it's, a, it's really a very long confession, 30 pages long. Um, and uh, it's, it really is the key document for trying to make sense of who he is and, and what he's about. And so in the book, you use a, a genre of fiction, the, uh, the Picaro genre to examine the lives of Aguayo and Atondo. What, what was this and what is this genre? And um, how much can it tell us about their lives and about the vagabundos more generally? Okay. Um, the word picaro, uh, with its, its analog picardia, uh, that, was a, that was a term that came into popular use in the 16th century. Uh, Picaro evidently was was uh, was being used by about 1530, according to uh, Spanish linguists, and it was a, a, a totally negative term at that point when it was beginning to circulate in speech. Uh, uh, it, it was closely related to to vagabond, to vagabundo, um, a suspicious character, someone who someone who couldn't be trusted, uh, uh, someone who didn't, uh, didn't do the expected thing, didn't, didn't obey the rules, uh, nothing very attractive about the picaro as, as the term was being used at that, at that point. Um, it comes into use, I think, because of I, the great changes that are happening in the 16th century. Uh, that this is, you know, we think about Renaissance, you know, we think about a golden age, uh, we think about Spain and its possessions overseas and expansion and innovation and things like uh, uh, the printing press, uh, movable type, uh, uh, new technique, new new uh, uh, new technologies for navigation that allowed uh, long distance travel out at sea. Uh, um, lots of things going on that seem kind of creative, but this is also a time of enormous uh, turbulence, uh, of, of great uh, uh, disruption, uh, displacement. So it's a time of opportunity and, and, a, and a very dangerous time. Dangerous in, in, in another sense, uh, that, that people are being um, um, they're, 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 they're being, in a sense, cast out of their communities. Uh, that uh, up to the 15th century, most people were living a, a rural agricultural life. Uh, there, there hadn't been uh, much in the way of great urbanization yet. That happens in the 16th century and, and looking at Spain as well as other parts of Europe. Um, 
and uh, it, it leads to lots of people who move, people on the move. This is kind of an age of strangers that begins in the 16th century and in some ways continues right up to our own time uh, with you know, periods of kind of accelerated change in which, which people move around or you come in contact with people who are different from yourself. Uh, and uh, there's, there's uh, a, a, a kind of uncertainty about this, uh, that people are gonna have to make their living in a new way. They're gonna have to move into a town or city. They might be conscripted into one of the European wars of the 16th century, which are continuous for Spain. Uh, you, they're, they're, you're going to move perhaps with rising expectations to the new world. Uh, this is a, a place where you can maybe strike it rich. Uh, Acer America, as, as uh, the Italians said in Argentina in the, in the 19th century, they, they come to America to, to make America, to, to, make their, to make their living here, to, 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 just to strike it rich. So for lots of reasons, people are moving around uh, and or forced to move around usually. And so we have a lot of in, we have a lot of people who, in a sense, are who who are caricatured by this new literary figure that emerges in the mid 16th century. The the picaro, picaresque novels begin to begin to show up, and the first one is Spanish, uh, and it's Lazarillo de Tormes in the in uh, the 1550s, and then around in the 1590s and early 17th century, we've got a, a spate of, of, of picaresque novels. Uh, one of them is extremely important called Guzman de Alfarache, which was at the time as popular as uh, Don Quixote was evidently, right? a bestseller of its time. And it spawned another kind of generation, several generations of uh, these picaresque novels. And the, 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 the protagonist is always uh, an anti-hero is one of these outcasts, one of these vagabond kind of figures uh, who, who moves around, who, who lives on deceit, who, uh, who, uh, uh, who uh, tricks people, who steals from them, uh, isn't violent generally. We're not talking about kind of violent crime or figures who, you know, who look like hardened criminals. They, they may be juvenile delinquents. They may be kind of uh, professional uh, pickpockets uh, <laughs> among them, uh, uh, but these are people who are surviving by their wits. They're they're outsiders. They're from elsewhere. Uh, they're under suspicion just by their nature. We don't know who this person is, and those and and these are loners generally. They don't have close friends. They don't have family. Uh, they're they're su surviving by their uh, by their wits. Um, these anti-heroes are not totally negative, so they're not exactly like the, the picaro of, of popular usage in 1530s and 1540s. They have their attractions. They're sort of interesting, amusing, witty, cunning. Um, and uh, so you begin to see how the term picaro is changing uh, after, these, after these novels become, uh, come, to, come into currency. Um, the dictionaries of the uh, the, uh, of the 18th century, the early 18th century dictionaries in Spain, uh, have a kind of split personality about uh, what picaro means. It means, on the one hand, all these terrible things. Period, but it also means these kind of pleasant, amusing, cunning, untrustworthy, but uh, scoundrel-like uh, 
uh, characters at the same time. Uh, to me, Aguayo looks like one of those scoundrels, and my guess is he thought of himself in those terms. Uh, the Guzman de Alfarache uh, Picaresque novel circulated in America quite widely, and the term Picaro in, its, in this kind of complex meaning, this kind of uh, Jekyll and Hyde meaning, uh, uh, was, uh, was current. Uh, in, in, in Spanish America in the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, so whether or not he ever read those novels, which is unlikely, I think, uh, he was literate, but uh, he wasn't someone who had kind of the time, the time or, you know, kind of stayed in any one place long enough to be sitting down to read, uh, reading Guzman de Alfarache, which, which runs to two big volumes. Um, so, uh, this is a kind of literature that comes out of the time, that comes out of this time of disruption and disorder, a, a character that replaces the, you know, the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the romances of chivalry, uh, kind of uh, chivalric hero of, uh, of the early 16th century that uh, Spaniards were consuming as their popular literature. It comes to rival and then displace that kind of, that kind of literature. So I think that I think the picaresque uh, novels are interesting and important, partly as a reflection of those times. That, uh, in fact, I turned to uh, the the best uh, Mexican example we have from from this period, uh, uh, Periquillo Sarniento, uh, as my kind of way of beginning to understand picaros long ago, when I was curious about vagabonds and people uh, kind of out of place, people looking for a home in early colonial history. That was an interest of mine, but I really couldn't pursue it uh, through uh, historical records. I, I, I couldn't find those people in the way that I'd, I'd hoped to. So I, the Periquillo Sarniento was something of a touchstone for me about who these people were, which is not to say I was uh, gonna say that they're just, uh, that uh, the Periquillo is, is just like any particular individual. It becomes a kind of yardstick against which to uh, 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 understand uh, an individual who in some ways looks very much like a, uh, a picaresque, uh, um, I don't want to say rebel either, because these, 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 uh, these Picaros don't have, a, they don't have a social mission. They're not revolutionaries. They're not insurrectionists. Uh, uh, they're out there doing their own thing, uh, surviving uh, by their wits as best they can. I'm really glad that you you found these stories um, and brought them to our attention because they're so interesting um, for what they tell us about society at that time. Um, but also they're just really great stories. I think they're so eventful. But I think if you hadn't, they would have remained completely unknown. So how did you how did you find these stories and um and how did you approach the research and writing the book more generally uh well uh this uh, this book is unexpected shall we say uh you know I've, i'm 12 years retired uh from my professional life as a college professor uh, so i'm 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 in my 70s now uh, and uh, uh, this is not a new subject for me. It's a subject I was interested in 50 years ago. Um, um, one of the first books I purchased um, 
in Mexico is a book called uh, Los Vagabundos en la Nueva España, Siglo XVI, Vagabonds in New Spain, uh, 16th century. And I, I bought that and was, I wanted to know more about strangers in this history, this whole idea of how do you kind of make a place for yourself, uh, identity, uh, uh, survival, uh, ways in which this colonial system seemed to be both coming together, growing, being established, and also falling apart at the same at the same time. That was a thought I had uh, uh, in the 1960s when I started my work. And so I thought, well, this this is great. I've, I've got this book and I've read the book. Except the book is really only you know using these uh, administrative records, these orders, these laws, these uh, kind of little uh, letters by. Viceroy is saying, you know, this is a serious problem we have here with these vagabundos. They're out there and they're they're making trouble. They're stirring things up. They're uh, they're they're creating disorder. Well, that that wasn't helping me understand who they were. Um, so I went to the Mexican National Archive, uh, which is the great repository of criminal records and and other kinds of, uh, of court records, ecclesiastical courts as well. The Inquisition records end up mostly in the National Archive. All, some of Mexican Inquisition records are dispersed in collections throughout the world. But I couldn't find my, I couldn't find these characters. I couldn't find them there. And so I sort of left that subject aside and and uh, moved on to other things that I could uh, kind of get my teeth into and make what I'd hoped was a, a lasting contribution to understanding the kind of how this how this society, how this political and, and economic system worked. Along the way, you know, I gathered microfilms for other things that uh, you know seemed interesting as I was doing my research on parish priests and uh, uh, peasant villages and. Uh, um, uh, religious, uh, uh, religious life. And about four years ago, I kind of in a fit of uh, downsizing, I, I decided to go through my, my papers and microfilm uh, and throw things out and pass things along to colleagues who I thought might be able to use them, just kind of miscellaneous things that I thought might be interesting at some future time, you know, 30 years ago. And and ordered some microfilm, that sort of thing, taking some notes. And uh, I was looking through my Inquisition microfilms uh, because several colleagues of mine are doing uh, transcriptions and translations of Inquisition cases for classroom use. And I thought I might have something that would be useful to one or another of them. And discovered that I had a, a, a big chunk of this really voluminous record for Joseph Aguayo. I had part of one of his Inquisition trials, a good part of one of his Inquisition trials. And I started reading it and it clicked. I said, boy, this is, this is exactly what I had hoped to find 50 years ago. And somewhere along the line, I'd taken a glance at the, the, uh, at the case file in, in uh, the, the National Archive in Mexico City and, and it ordered microfilm of it but it never looked at it uh, with, with any care. So I started reading it carefully and the deeper I got, the more interesting it became to me. And I started looking for uh, other records about him and discovered there was yet more 
these two other encounters that he had with the uh, with the Inquisition. So you end up with hundreds, uh, over 600 pages of of record for uh, this this one individual, and they turn out to be really wonderfully rich records, not just uh, kind of formal proceedings, but uh, uh, lots of interesting testimony and uh, his own words and lots of documented actions of things that he did and his selective representation of himself and the, the half-truths that he could tell, he could spin out with such, uh, with such fluency. So I, I had a guayo and I started thinking, is there anyone else that I could pair with him as a way of not saying that these two individuals are basically the same, but a way of understanding their individual lives, putting them together as a way of, of seeing how different they were, as well as their similarities and trying to understand both the similarities and, and, and the differences. And I, I taught at the University of California at, at Berkeley for uh, the last 10 years of my career and had done extensive work in the Bancroft Library going back 30 or 40 years. And they have a wonderful collection of Mexican manuscripts and rare books. Uh, and I had glanced at a, a, a case file, uh, the, the, the Atondo case file, at the time, uh, looking for things that students might be interested in reading and writing about. And, and it, it looked sort of interesting, but I hadn't paid close attention, didn't look closely. And uh, uh, here in these last two years, after I'd found the Aguayo materials and then had, had discovered yet more materials in Mexico City that I could integrate with those, uh, a, a good friend of mine who was the curator of uh, Latin Americana in the Bancroft Library reminded me of the, uh, the Atondo file, which I, I had just briefly seen, and uh, I went back to it uh, and read it carefully and, and thought this is a really interesting case to pair with Aguayo because in some ways they look rather similar in, in their picaresque lives, the picaresque side of their lives, but that Atonda was a very different kind of character than Aguayo. And uh, so putting those together allowed me to to think about both their relationship to kind of what what picaro, what picaro could mean at this time, also recognizing the the substantial differences between them. I'm glad you found them. So, uh, thank you very much. Um, so, the book's called "Fugitive Freedom: The Improbable Lives of Two Imposters in Late Colonial Mexico," and am I right in saying it's out later this month? That's correct, Max. Yes. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website, www.maxsargent.com slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelled M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at historyoflatinamericapodcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at historylatinam. And if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. 
Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T photo. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.